0: To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On a hot summer day in 1974, a young girl chased a dog through a national park in Provincetown. The dog suddenly stopped It caught a scent. The 12 year old girl inched closer to the scent, and that's when she made a horrific discovery. She found a decomposing female with her hands cut off. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 151 The Lady of the Dunes. Your support helps me find new exciting cases, conduct in-depth, fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. As a thank you for supporting my show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, shout-outs and episodes, priority on case suggestions, and access to weekly bonus episodes. To support forensic Tales, please visit us at patreon.com/forensic Tales or simply click the link in the show notes. You can also support this show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's get to this week's episode. On July 26, 1974, a woman's body was discovered in the dunes about a mile east of the Race Point Ranger station, inside Cape Cod National Seashore in Provincetown, Massachusetts. The Cape Cod National Seashore is a national park that offers 40 miles of sandy beaches, marshes, and ponds. It's home to diverse wildlife, unique lighthouses, and cultural landscapes. But on the morning of July 26, 1974, the national park became known for something that would haunt the area for decades. On July 26th, a 12-year-old girl chased a dog throughout the park. She followed the dog until it suddenly stopped. She watched as the dog sniffed around an area of the dunes and eventually wandered off. The girl wondered what caught the dog's attention, so she walked toward the dune. As she got closer, she thought she saw what looked like a dead deer lying in the dirt. It wasn't uncommon to find dead wildlife in the area but the girl soon realized it wasn't a dead deer. Instead, it was the body of a badly decomposed woman. When the police arrived, they found the woman lying face down on a beach towel. The woman laid on only half of the beach towel, and underneath her head was a blue bandana and a pair of Wrangler denim jeans. Her body was discovered just yards away from the main road, and her body showed signs of significant animal and insect activity. Based on the level of decomposition and insect activity, the police believed the woman had been dead at least several days, if not longer. Two major aspects stuck out to the investigators. Number one was her hands. When they arrived, both hands were missing and part of her forearm. Number two was her head. Her head had been so badly beaten that it was nearly decapitated. The entire left side of her skull had been completely crushed. When investigators looked at the rest of the victim's body, they found no defensive wounds. So whoever this woman was didn't fight back. It also struck investigators that she was only lying on one part of the beach towel— It almost looked like someone had been lying down next to her at some point. The police weren't able to find much evidence around the body. They didn't find any type of murder weapon, and the only clues they found were two sets of footprints leading to her body and tire tracks about 50 yards away. Other than that, the scene was nearly empty. Whoever killed this woman was careful not to leave anything behind. When the body was taken to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy, the pathologist reported that the woman had died from blunt force trauma and her manner of death was a homicide. The blunt force trauma to her head had nearly decapitated her. There were also signs that she might have been sexually assaulted post-mortem. Based on the level of decomposition, the pathologist theorized she was murdered anywhere from 10 days to two weeks before her discovery. And her last meal consisted of a burger and french fries. After investigators confirmed the woman had been murdered, the next step was to figure out who she was. Once identified, they could work backward to find her killer. But identifying her proved to be challenging. She didn't have any identification on her And besides the beach towel, blue bandana, and pair of Wrangler denim jeans, the police didn't find any of her personal items. And since both of her hands had been removed, investigators couldn't take fingerprints to run through any database. The missing hands told investigators that whoever did this didn't want anyone finding out who this woman was. But before homicide detectives could focus on finding a suspect, they first needed to give this Jane Doe a name. Investigators dug through missing person reports to see if anyone had been reported missing in the area in the last several weeks, but nothing turned up. Investigators also canvassed the dunes, looking for anyone who might have seen her in the area before she was killed, but again, nothing turned up. The Cape Cod National Seashore is 40 miles long, it's a place that constantly has people coming in and going out. It was also hard for the police to find witnesses because they weren't even sure what day she was murdered. Over the next several weeks, detectives put up bulletins and flyers. They read through a list of approved vehicles driven through the area, but nothing worked. This led investigators to believe that she might have been killed elsewhere And dumped at the site, but this was only a theory. Without an identity, the woman became known as the Lady of the Dunes. Investigators knew nothing about her except she was murdered inside Cape Cod National Seashore. The Lady of the Dunes was 5 feet 6 inches tall, weighed 145 pounds, and had an athletic body type. Inside her mouth, detectives noticed that she had some extensive dental work done. The work included several crowns worth anywhere from $5,000 up to $10,000. In 1974, dentists called this type of work the New York style of dental work. But besides the expensive crowns, investigators also noticed that some of her teeth were missing. This made them wonder if her killer had also removed some of her teeth just like her hands, because teeth could have been another way for the police to identify her. Another thing that investigators had trouble doing was figuring out how old she was. Some of them believed that she could be anywhere from 25 to 40 years old, while others thought she could be much younger, like 20. And still, on the other end of the spectrum, they thought that she might be as old as 49 or 50. This led to some confusion because at the autopsy, the pathologist couldn't find anything during the autopsy to suggest how old she was. When police discovered her body, the Lady of the Dunes had long red hair pulled back in a ponytail by a gold-colored elastic hairband, and her toenails were painted pink. Over the next three months, detectives worked tirelessly trying to identify the Lady of the Dunes. They feared whoever killed her intentionally removed her hands and several teeth, trying to conceal her identity. They worried that there could be additional victims. But despite their efforts, police couldn't identify her. The Lady of the Dunes body was buried three months after her discovery in October 1974. After months of trying to identify her, the case went cold. No one came forward looking for any woman matching her description. If she did have any family members or friends, none of them reported her missing. By October 1974, she was buried as the Lady of the Dunes in the St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown. Her small gravestone read, Unidentified Female Body Found Race Point Dunes July 26, 1974. Although the Lady of the Dunes was buried, the community and the police department couldn't get her murder off their minds. She was murdered so brutally that people couldn't sleep knowing that there was a killer out there. But the investigation into who the Lady of the Dunes was remained cold for the next five years. Five years after she was buried, The first facial reconstruction was created in 1979. Investigators had a forensic artist construct the woman's face with clay. The hope was the clay facial reconstruction would jog someone's memory. They still hoped that she had family or friends who missed her and wondered where she was. Once the clay structure was created, the police circulated it everywhere but they didn't get any additional tips, and the Lady of the Dunes was still a Jane Doe. After the clay facial reconstruction failed, investigators tried something else. A year later, in 1980, investigators exhumed her body from St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown. At this point, the woman had been unidentified for over six years. In 1980, investigators exhumed her body looking for any clues they might have missed years earlier. But no new clues were uncovered. Nothing about the exhumation told investigators anything new about who this woman was. After exhuming her body in 1980, she was once again buried at St. Peter's. And many of the investigators were assigned new cases. But despite being reassigned, many of them couldn't stop thinking about the Lady of the Dunes. In 1981, the police received another tip. A woman who resembled the Lady of the Dunes was seen with Whitney Bulger, an American crime boss, around the same time the Lady of the Dunes was presumed dead. Whitney Bulger led the Winter Hill gang in the Winter Hill neighborhood of Somerville, a city northwest of Boston. During his time as a crime boss, he was known for removing his victim's teeth. So initially, this tip seemed promising because several of the Lady of the Dune's teeth were missing. And for a while, investigators thought Whitney Bulger could be their guy. But over the course of their investigation, they never found any solid evidence linking him to the case. Whitney Bulger was eventually killed in prison while serving two life sentences For murder, after Whitney Bulger, another criminal rose to the suspect list: Tony Costa. Tony Costa was a local serial killer in the area who was once considered a suspect. Tony Costa is believed to have murdered anywhere from two to five people throughout the Greater Boston area in 1969. His case gained national media attention because he cut. Several of his victims into pieces and removed his victims' hearts. But, like the mob boss, the police couldn't find any evidence linking Tony Costa to the Lady of the Dunes. For the next several years, police received tips about the woman. In 1987, 13 years later, a Canadian woman told police that her father had confessed to strangling and killing a woman in 1972. She told investigators that the woman could be the Lady of the Dunes. But police were skeptical about the woman's story. First, the Lady of the Dunes was killed sometime during the summer of 1974, a full two years earlier. And number two, the police didn't find any evidence that her father was anywhere near the Dunes in 1974. Later that year, the police received another tip. This time, a woman told the police the facial reconstruction created in 1979 looked like her sister. The woman told investigators that her younger sister went missing in 1974 and was last seen in Boston. Initially, the police were hopeful that the Lady of the Dunes could be this woman's younger sister. But after thoroughly investigating the tip, it turned out to be yet another dead end. Support for this episode comes from the Foggy Dog. If you're looking for the perfect holiday gift for the pup who has it all, the Foggy Dog now offers personalization to make your gift even more special. You can embroider or engrave your dog's name on the Foggy Dog's high-quality collars, bandanas, and beds. Plus, they just launched new ID tags. I just got one for my golden retriever Kona, and it's so cute. You can shop happy knowing that your order provides a pound of food to rescue shelters. Shop the Foggy Dog today at thefoggydog.com. And don't forget to use my promo code FORENSIC to get 15% off your order. That's thefoggydog.com Promo code forensic to save 15% off your order. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. A theory formulated that the Lady of the Dunes might be an escaped criminal named Rory Jean Kissinger. Rory Jean Kissinger fled her Pembroke, Massachusetts home when a police officer knocked on her front door to execute a traffic warrant. But before she could get far, she tripped over a rock, giving the police officer enough time to catch up to her. She was put in handcuffs, and the officer asked her why she was running away from a simple traffic warrant. Rory Jean Kissinger told the police officer that she had been sexually assaulted just minutes earlier and was trying to escape her attacker when he knocked on her front door. Once she calmed down, the officer took her to his house instead of taking her to the police station. He thought that she would be safe at his house away from this attacker, and that they would call the authorities together to report the sexual assault. But when he brought her back to his house, things didn't go as planned. After Rory and the police officer got inside the house, she quickly turned off the lights and grabbed his service weapon. She then turned the lights on, pointed the gun at him, and said, I'm sorry, but I have to kill you. The two fought over the gun, and after the altercation was over, the officer took the weapon away from her and finally put her in handcuffs. Rory was then taken straight to the hospital for a sexual assault kit to be performed. But when other police officers went into the room and questioned her at the hospital, her story changed. Originally, she said there was an attacker at her house when the police officer got there, and that's why she was running away. But now, at the hospital, she told the officers that the cop who showed up at her door to execute the traffic warrant was the person who assaulted her it was the cop but this story didn't seem to make much sense to them so after the hospital performed the sexual assault kit rory was transported to the plymouth county jail once she was in custody she was charged with two counts of assault and attempted murder this was for stealing the first police officer's service weapon and threatening to kill him If convicted of these charges, she was facing several decades behind bars. But Rory Jean Kissinger wouldn't be in jail long. On May 26, 1973, Rory escaped from the Plymouth County Jail. She sawed off the bars on her cell's window using a hacksaw that someone smuggled into the jail for her. Then she created a rope. For climbing down the building using her bed sheets. Once she reached the ground outside of the jail a car was already there waiting for her and the two drove off together. Rory Jean Kissinger was never seen again. For many years people wondered if the Lady of the Dunes could be her. They wondered if her luck had finally run out and if someone had turned on her and murdered her. This theory gained even more attention when people discovered that Rory and the Lady of the Dunes had a striking resemblance to each other. But this was all just another theory. The police found no stone-cold evidence suggesting that Rory was in fact the Lady of the Dunes. And in fact... Rory's mother provided the police a DNA sample that didn't match the Lady of the Dunes. To this day, Rory Jean Kissinger is still missing, and it's unclear whether she's even still alive. Two other missing women were thought to be potential matches. The first was Frances Ewalt. Frances was last seen at a bar on Main Street in Montana, at 11 o'clock p.m. on August 19, 1973. She left a female friend at the bar and said that she was going to see her brother, a nightclub musician. But she never made it to see her brother and she was never seen again. Frances Ewald left everything behind when she vanished in 1973. She left her car, purse, clothing, and even her three sons behind. At the time of her disappearance, she was in the process of getting divorced and working as a cocktail waitress. Police investigated this tip that the Lady of the Dunes might be Frances Ewalt, but Frances was eventually ruled out. The second missing woman was Vicki Lamberton. Vicki Lamberton was a 24-year-old woman getting a master's degree in psychology at Assumption College in 1974. Around the time of her disappearance, Vicki and her husband were separated and considering divorce. Her husband claimed that Vicki was having an affair with one of her psychology professors, Dr. Roger Baker, but the police were never able to confirm this. Vicki called her husband after they had been separated for about six weeks during January and February of 1974. On these phone calls, they talked about getting back together and fixing their marriage. On one of their last phone calls together, Vicki told her husband she planned to see him after returning from a weekend trip to Maine with one of her girlfriends. But Vicki never met up with her husband and she was never seen again. Vicki's husband was concerned when he didn't hear from her, so he called the friend she was supposed to have gone to Maine with, but she said she hadn't heard from Vicki in a while and that they never had plans to go to Maine. Like Frances Ewald of Montana, Vicki Lamberton was also ruled out as being the Lady of the Dunes, and to this day, she is also still missing. In 2000, the body was exhumed for the second time. By 2000, investigators had new advancements in DNA testing. So they exhumed her body to see if DNA testing could help identify her. But the testing didn't work. Four years later, in 2004, there was another big break in the case. In 2004, a man sent a letter claiming that he killed the Lady of the Dunes. Hayden Irving Clark wrote the letter explaining that he had buried evidence related to the case in his grandfather's backyard. He also claimed to know the woman's true identity, but said that he wouldn't tell the police because, in his words, he had been mistreated by them before. But the police doubted Clark's story mostly because of his history of paranoid schizophrenia. Hayden Clark was arrested in November 1992 for the murders of a six-year-old girl, Michelle Doerr, in 1986, and the murder of a 23-year-old woman in 1992. He's currently serving a 70-year prison sentence for the murders in a Maryland state prison. The police found no evidence definitively linking him to the Lady of the Dunes. Six years later, the police tried something new. In 2010, the police took the Lady of the Dune's skull and had it undergo a CT scanning to create a computer-generated facial reconstruction. Like the previous reconstruction, the computer-generated image was circled through the state and across the country, but nothing new turned up. Three years later, in 2013, they tried exhuming the body again, and this time for the third time. Between the year 2000 and 2013, there were even more advancements in DNA testing. By 2013, many consumers were purchasing at-home DNA test kits. These kits were used for people to help find out more about their ancestry and family tree. At the time, the most popular site was Ancestry.com. DNA testing was also being used to solve years-old mysteries. Ancient remains were tested and identified using DNA. So by 2013, investigators hoped these advancements could identify her. But, like so many of the other previous attempts, it didn't work. In August 2015, One of the most popular theories about the Lady of the Dunes emerged. In 2015, people speculated that the woman may have been an extra in the 4th of July beach scene in the famous movie Jaws. This was one of the movie's biggest scenes. This is where everyone is seen swimming in the ocean when Jaws attacked. In one part of the scene... An extra in the film looks a lot like the Lady of the Dunes. She's wearing blue denim jeans, a white t-shirt, and a purple-blue-colored beanie. People also thought it could be her because the movie was filmed on Martha's Vineyard in 1974, so the same year she was killed, and about 100 miles away from where the Lady of the Dunes' body was discovered. Now, this might have been one of the most popular theories over the years, but it wasn't true either. The female extra had nothing to do with the case. By early 2020, skeletal remains of the Lady of the Dunes were sent to a private lab, Othram, Inc. Othram, Inc. is a private lab based in Texas that specializes in forensic genealogy. Their company's mission is to solve murders, disappearances, and identify previously unidentified decedents or murder victims. Othram operates by combining advanced DNA testing and traditional genealogy. Most of the cases that Othram works on are funded by either donors or crowdsourcing. Each case can cost the company over $5,000 to conduct the proper advanced DNA testing used to solve the case or identify the individual. In early 2020, cold case investigators sent the Lady of the Dunes remains to Othram to see if advanced testing could be done on them. It had been almost five decades, so they weren't sure there was even enough DNA to be tested. But Othram obtained the funding and agreed to test the remains to see what they could find. For the next several months, Othram tested the skeletal remains. Then finally, they could pull enough DNA from the remains to be tested. One of the greatest strengths of this particular lab is its ability to test even the tiniest amounts of DNA. And they can also test DNA samples that are incredibly degraded and still get accurate results. In this case, the condition of the Lady of the Dunes body was terrible under any circumstances. Various chemical treatments from past attempts to extract forensic evidence from the remains had severely degraded the remaining parts of her body but Authram Inc eventually found a usable sample despite the chemical damage once Authram generated a DNA profile of the woman they used genealogy to identify distant relatives after months of testing Authram finally reported to police that they found a match in October 2022 the Lady of the Dunes was finally identified after five decades. The announcement served as the conclusion to the oldest unidentified homicide victim case in the state's history. On October 31, 2022, the woman was identified as 37-year-old Ruth Marie Terry. Before she became known as the Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Marie Terry was born in Tennessee on September 8, 1936. At the time she was murdered, she was 37 years old. She was also a daughter, sister, aunt, wife, and mother. Although she was born in Tennessee, throughout her life, she had connections and ties to Michigan, Massachusetts, and California. When the FBI announced that Ruth Terry was the Lady of the Dunes, they didn't provide any other details. They didn't mention any possible suspects in her murder or any details about how or why she was in the dunes that summer of 1974. They only announced that she had finally been identified through forensic genealogy, the same method that's been used to identify over 150 criminals across the country and most notably the Golden State Killer. Two days after the FBI announced her identity, the state police made a second announcement on November 2nd, 2022. The state police asked for any information about Ruth Marie Terry's husband, Guy Rockwell. At the time of her murder, Ruth and Guy were married. The two married several months before in February 1974. So naturally, The police wanted to speak with him to find out what he knew about her murder. But unfortunately, the Massachusetts State Police quickly learned they wouldn't get an opportunity to talk to him. Ruth's husband, Guy Rockwell, had passed away years earlier on March 14, 2002, two decades before her identification. Although investigators can't speak with him directly, They're working on uncovering as much as possible about their relationship. Both Ruth and her husband Guy went by several names and aliases over the years. Guy Rockwell used the name Raul Guy Rockwell and Guy Mulvedon Rockwell. Ruth was also known by Terry Marie Vinzina and Terry Shannon. Investigators don't know everything about Guy Rockwell, But here's what they know so far. He was born in 1923. He grew up splitting his time between Switzerland and the United States. He lived in Switzerland, New York, and Connecticut throughout his childhood. Then as a young adult, he moved to New York and worked as a professor at the Academy of Dramatic Arts. While living in New York, Guy Rockwell met and married his first wife, Jolene Luke. After they married, they moved to the Northwest, where Guy got a job in Seattle, Washington, at a furniture store. They then purchased and owned an antique shop of their own. Guy and Jolyn were married for 10 years until they divorced. She died in January 2002, just two months before Guy Rockwell died. After they divorced, he married his second wife, Mansie Ryan. Manzi had a teenage daughter from a previous relationship, so Guy became the daughter's stepfather. But Manzi and Guy weren't married long. In 1960, Manzi and her 18-year-old adult daughter disappeared on April Fool's Day. The police searched for them for months, but they didn't turn up. A few months later, in July 1960, Guy Rockwell filed for divorce from Mansie, despite her still being missing. In his divorce paperwork, Guy cited that Mansie had deserted him, which gave him grounds for a divorce. Within days of divorcing his second wife, who was still missing, Guy married his third wife, Evelyn Emerson. While Guy remarried, the police were still looking for Mansie and her daughter. Their search brought them back to Guy's house, which he shared with Manzi. When investigators searched a septic tank located on his property, they found several small pieces of human tissue inside the septic tank. At the time, the police could only determine they were human tissues. They couldn't determine if the remains belonged to Manzi or her daughter. But when the police went to question Guy about it, He was nowhere to be found. The police eventually tracked him down in December 1960. He was arrested by the FBI in Brooklyn, New York, and he was charged with unlawful flight to avoid giving testimony relating to mutilation of human remains. The FBI questioned him about the murders, but he was never charged in connection with their presumed murders. Guy's second wife and stepdaughter were never seen alive again. At the same time he faced those charges, he also faced larceny charges for allegedly stealing money from his third wife's family. Guy was accused of stealing $10,000 from the family around the time his second wife went missing. He was convicted in 1961 on those charges and sentenced to 15 years but in March 1962, a judge suspended the 15-year prison sentence with the condition that Guy repays the money back. By 1970, Guy moved on from his third wife, Evelyn Emerson, and by February 1974, he met and married 37-year-old Ruth Marie Terry, formerly known as the Lady of the Dunes. Little is known about Ruth's life before marrying Guy Rockwell, except that she was born in Tennessee and married once before. While Ruth remained unidentified for decades, Guy Rockwell continued with his life. He never reported her missing and was never questioned by the police. He was never questioned because, for five decades, the police had no idea who the Lady of the Dunes even was. After Ruth was murdered, Guy moved to the West Coast where he started his life over once again. He remarried. He married a woman named Phyllis Roper, who was listed as his widow in his 2002 obituary. Phyllis Roper died last year in 2021. Now that the Lady of the Dunes has finally been identified through genetic genealogy, the FBI is asking for any information about her death and her husband, Guy Rockwell the FBI hopes that additional information can help them piece together what happened to Ruth and determine if Guy Rockwell, her husband, had anything to do with it. According to an article by the Cape Cod Times, the Barnstable County Registry of Deeds records show that Guy's father, Albert, sold 16 Provincetown properties between 1950 and 1956. The documents also show he purchased two properties in Provincetown in 1948 and 1950. These records are important because these records suggest that Guy and his father had a connection to Provincetown, Massachusetts. And if so, that would explain why Ruth's body was discovered there. The FBI hasn't confirmed if Guy is considered a suspect in Roots' murder. Massachusetts State Police, the Cape and Island District Attorney's Office, and the Provincetown Police Department are asking anyone with information about Guy Rockwell or Ruth Terry to contact 1-800-CAPTURE. You can also send a text to 226-787 or send an email to msptips at pol.state.ma.us. The Lady of the Dunes may have been finally identified through genetic genealogy. However, there is still a lot of investigating left to figure out exactly what happened to her and who was responsible for her murder almost five decades ago. To share your thoughts on the Lady of the Dunes story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. You'll want to check this one out because I'm going to share what I think happened to her. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller Audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell-Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us forensic tales is a podcast made possible by our patreon producers tony a nicole l david b nicole g paula g christine b karen d sherry a elizabeth m michael d lisa s and nicola if you'd like to become a producer of the show head over to our patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.